Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited about this case we're going to talk about today. Yeah, Melissa told me just the name of the person she's talking about, and I don't think I know this case at all. That's why I'm excited. All right, well, let's get into it. Start telling me. Today, we're going to talk about what happens when dirtbags collide and when the prison walls that are meant to keep the monsters contained become bloodied. Oh, is this someone getting their just comeuppance? It might be. Did I say the word right? Yep. Okay, good. (laughs) Melissa taught me that word, by the way. Just comeuppance? You have to go back a few episodes to hear about when she introduced it to me. So this is taking place in a prison. Part of it. We're going to talk about when the line between victim and dirtbag becomes blurred as we dig deep into the life of Christopher Scarver. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to talk about with this one. And I'm super surprised that you don't know who he is. I don't think so. Unless you get into the case and I was like, wait, I've heard of this case and just not remembering the name. But right now it's not ringing any bells. You don't know how happy that makes me. (laughs) It's hard to find cases that Christy hasn't at least heard a little bit about. (laughs) And so it's awesome when you find ones that I don't know. Mm -hmm. But right off the bat, this is making me think of Robert Maudsley a little bit. Very similar vibes. Okay. So Christopher Scarver was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on July 6, 1969. He was the second oldest in a family of five, and there were some mixed reports about how his family life was when he was younger. Some say that his father was an alcoholic who was physically abusive, and others say that he was just a guy that drank and didn't really have a problem with being abusive. Hmm. But from the age of five, Christopher said that he could remember hearing voices that made it difficult for him to focus. He attended Byron Kilbourne Elementary School And there he felt he was the subject of extreme racial discrimination as a black person and was bullied by his contemporaries. He struggled with feeling like less of a person because of the color of his skin. And I can only imagine how this would affect his outlook on life and what would later lead into the rage-filled outbursts that he would experience later in life. And that is so sad from such a young age of five to experience that. Mm -hmm. So he had a few things going on in his little world. And I'm thinking if there are some reports that the father was an abusive alcoholic, he probably was. Because people who usually witness that abuse are going to say it rather than the odd person who maybe didn't witness that abuse and is like, oh, no, he just liked to drink sometimes. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like there could be two different viewpoints because not everybody witnessed the abuse. It sounded more like it was kind of a common thing that went on. And so not a lot of people recognized it as abuse. Oh, that's true, too. Mm -hmm. So it was back in the 70s, and it seemed like, yes, he did smack his kids around, but that was kind of accepted at the time. Yeah, that's true. So in hindsight, some people labeled it as abusive, and then others say, well, that was just kind of the norm. Oh, okay. So it's not people who were there watching that were giving those different reports. No, his siblings say that it was just kind of the norm. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there were other people from the outside that said, no, he was a drunk and abusive. Okay. So he's not having a great home life. And then he's having to endure racism by his peers and community members. Right. And it seems he always felt like a little bit of an outsider, that he had something else going on internally with him as well that mm. made it hard for him to focus. Because as he continued in his schooling, Christopher experienced less than mediocre grades and struggled academically while attending James Madison High School. In his teenage years, he became undisciplined, according to teachers and family members. The boy, with a good heart that had enjoyed making music, was getting harder and harder to reach by outside influences. Hmm. During this time in his life, Christopher said that the voices in his head were starting to become louder and louder. He became involved in alcohol and drugs, and this didn't help his grades or his home life. But just trying to quiet those voices. I think that's what he was trying to do. By grade 11, he saw no point in continuing his education and dropped out of school completely. Oh, that's a sad start. When he dropped out of school, his mom kicked him out of the house, exercising some tough love, 
and wanting to protect her other children from his negative influences. He was just getting out of hand and she didn't know what to do with him, so she kicked him out. Yeah, it'd be a tough situation as a mom. Yeah, I can't imagine that position to be in as a mother, to have to be so tough with one child to protect others. Yeah, because what you let slide for one, you kind of are expected to let slide for the others. Or at least that's how the children are going to view it. Right. And so Christopher's mom decided that he just needed to leave the house. That was the best solution for everybody. For a brief period of time, he moved into his girlfriend's house. But her mom kicked him out as well, reportedly because of his substance abuse. That her teenage daughter was pregnant with Christopher's child might have been a motivating factor to separate them. Or maybe everyone was just trying to get him to turn his life around. You know, you hit rock bottom and now you got to turn it around. Hmm. And he's late teen now, right? Yeah, he's older. And then because of his substance abuse, her mom was like, no, you can't be around my daughter. Oh, and understandably so. That's Mm -hmm. not an okay situation to put your child in. Yeah, that might have been the motivating factor to separate them. I think she was looking out for the best interest of her daughter and soon to be grandchild. Right. And it looked like this might have worked for a little bit because Christopher did go and get enrolled in the Wisconsin's Conservation Corps job program. This program was designed specifically to help train the unemployed or undereducated with trades to better their lives. Christopher was enrolled into the carpentry program, and he was training under an individual named Edward Patz. It seemed that the two hit it off, and Edward saw something in Christopher and offered him a job with the company once his apprenticeship was done, a way to support his girlfriend and child that was on the way. Yeah, it's too bad. I'm thinking it doesn't pan out that way. It was not to be. Edward Patz was replaced by a man, Stephen Lohman, and the decision was made by the site manager, John Frayen, to no longer hire Christopher. Was it because of the color of his skin that he didn't want to hire Christopher? They never really give a reason why he was chosen not to be hired. Sounds a little suspicious to me. Yeah. So when Christopher's apprenticeship ended, he didn't get the job that he believed he was promised. Without a job, under the stress of a baby on the way... And no way to support that baby, with the voices in his head becoming louder and more distinguishable, he began to become obsessed with the idea that he had been wronged with missing out on this job. Oh no, he's going to fixate on it. He does. Oh, These voices he describes as high-pitched and hard to ignore. His alcohol and marijuana use increased in a misguided attempt to cope with them. He began to drink three 40-ounce bottles of beer every day. Whoa. And smoked at least four joints a day. Like you said in one of our previous cases, that's even just a lot of water to drink, let alone that much beer. Uh Uh-huh. 120 ounces? Yep. That's like 15 cups. I'd be peeing till the cows came home. It's a lot of liquid. It is. So you're talking about all of these voices. Was there an official diagnosis? Did he have split personality disorder, schizophrenia? Did they find out why he was being tormented? Later, Christopher would be diagnosed with schizophrenia, a disease that often presents or increases in severity in the late teens or early adulthood. But at this time, no one really understood all the changes that were happening to Christopher and why his behavior was so troubled or why he was what I'm assuming to be self-medicating with all the drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I can't imagine being a kid trying to figure out how to deal with that on your own. No. And all of the people around him, because he had had a happy childhood, he was always a happy-go-lucky kid, he had a big heart, he liked to play music, they hadn't seen any of these personality changes in him as a child. When he reached his teenage years, they just thought he was going off the ropes. That's why he was so Mm. disgruntled at school, he wouldn't pay attention, he never did get good grades in school, but they felt like this total personality switch was, again, because of the drugs and alcohol, which could have played a portion on it. And so not a lot of people were picking up on his mental health issues. Right. No one asked the question, why is he drinking and doing drugs so much? Right. And nobody kind of delved into all of these voices he was hearing in his head. And really, he's got nobody around him right now either. He got kicked out of his family's house and out of his girlfriend's house. So who can he even turn to for help at that age? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of people that Christopher could turn to. And he was having very believable auditory hallucinations. He believed them to actually be a family that he was missing out on. It included a woman and a man, a little girl and a boy telling him what to do. And those actions that they were telling him to do were all fueled by his past experiences and belief systems. 
Christopher had become fixated on the fact that he was owed money because he had lost out on his job opportunity, and he believed that the decision to fire him had been motivated by the racism that he had felt his whole life. Mm. And so he's having these internal conversations with himself or with this family that he believes is looking out for him. And it's all fueled by him feeling the discrimination as a child. And that's what's motivating him into action. So here you have this guy that was hurt and trying to make sense of the world and always feeling like he didn't measure up before and wasn't respected for what he had to offer. And now you throw in these voices in his head telling him the way to make it better was to demand that other people respect him and give him the things that he deserved. Yeah, that's going to be dangerous because these voices are just confirming to him the beliefs that he already has and maybe like egging him on a little bit. Yeah, building it up in his head that the belief that he was owed something and was completely entitled to it. Reiterating to him that he was wronged. Mm -hmm. And you can see how it would be so easily to give over to these voices in your head that were telling you that you weren't insignificant because that's what he had been feeling. Right. He completely believes that these white men had robbed him of his future. So he's going to steal it back. Oh, no. On June 1st, Christopher's pent-up rage boiled over. Christopher went to the program training office where John Fayen worked. Stephen Lohman just happened to be there at the same time. The voices in his head confirmed to him that this was the way that things were supposed to play out. Christopher entered the building and pushed Steve to the ground and held a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol to the head of the man that had replaced his previous supervisor. While holding the gun to the other man's head, he turned to John and demanded that he pay him the money that he deserved. Ooh. John only had $15 in his pocket and he handed it over. Christopher pretty much took this as an insult or a joke. To prove he wasn't joking, he shot Steve in the head, killing him instantly, all the while standing over the defenseless 27-year-old. Oh my goodness. John must have been terrified in that moment watching that happen. Yeah, he handed over everything that he had and he couldn't stop it from happening. Yeah, and I'm sure he did not intend it to be an insult. It was just what he had in his pocket. Right. Christopher turned back to John and said, now do you think I'm kidding? Then he barked, I need more money. John tried to appease Christopher by writing a $3,000 check. Christopher responded by shooting Stephen another time in the head. <gasps> and then one more time when no other money was forthcoming. Whoa. So he's already killed him and then continuing to shoot at his dead body mm -hmm. just to prove a point. Yep. He just thought it was a way to get this money that he believed he was owed. Oh. John, after this, ran for his life. Christopher shot at him as he ran into the street, but luckily he missed. Christopher fled the scene and retreated back to his girlfriend's apartment. And that's where the police found him two hours later. Still with the cash, the check, John's credit card that he had taken, and the gun still in his pocket. No way. Did he not think the police were going to come for him? There's a lot of debate about whether Christopher could appreciate the situation that he was in. Oh, okay. That's one of the criteria for determining if somebody was sane at the time of a murder or a crime being committed is whether their actions that follow up with it make sense with somebody that was going to kind of cover it up, right? Right. It's almost speaking to someone who doesn't really realize that what they did was wrong. And that is one of the defenses that they use later. Okay. But when police took him into custody, Christopher told the police that he had intended to turn himself in because he realized what he did was wrong. Oh, okay. But the reason he realized that he was wrong was because he claimed the voices in his head had told him that everything was going to be all right, and it was meant to happen just like the way it was playing out. That the police had caught him was meant to be. Okay. They had told him that he was the chosen one, and this is what was going to happen to the chosen one. Okay. That's taken a turn. He felt he did his due diligence, what he was supposed to or meant or destined to do. That's right. The voices in his head told him that he was going to be taken into custody because he was the chosen one. I think if anyone's choosing you to be a murderer, they're maybe not the one you want to be chosen by. No. I think that's a darker side than you want to be associated with. I always find the cases that we talk about that have mental health issues involved so fascinating on how you determine culpability. Mm, absolutely. Because he's genuinely believing this. And if it's because of his mental illness, then how at fault is he? He 100% believes that what these voices in his head are telling him are true. Yeah, it's his calling. 
Later, he would tell the court-appointed psychiatrist, William Crawley, that I don't know what came over me. I was never in trouble with the law, never in a fight with anyone. And it was true. Up until this point, Christopher had displayed no violent tendencies and had been in no trouble with the law. He had had some issues with being disrespectful to his parents and authoritative figures at school, but nothing that had put him on the police's radar. During his psychiatric interviews, he also said that he fully expected to go to prison for the rest of his life, again, because he was the chosen one to do this. When asked if he thought that this was a just fate, he answered with his belief that nothing white people do to blacks is just. Oh, so he's not even taking things like by case by case experience. He's just now saying all white people are bad to black people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different motives that come into the murders that this man commits. And I'm interested in hearing your opinion. It's already sounding pretty multifaceted. Mm -hmm. While in custody, Christopher received mental health treatment for the first time in his life in 1991 at the age of 22. He was placed in the Mendota Mental Health Institute for evaluation and examined by a number of specialists, and none could agree on his official diagnosis. Really? Mm-hmm. Different individuals diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, depression, psychosis, schizoaffective disorder, and a list of other mental illnesses. Some believe that he was a very deranged individual, and others felt that he was just making it all up. Well, I don't think he's making it up. Yeah. I think he's suffering. I think there's several incidences that happen in his life later on that make it very clear that he's not making it up. But that is a really wide variety of diagnoses. Yeah. The most often occurring diagnosis was schizophrenia. During his trial in 1992, he originally entered a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease. The mental health experts, however, couldn't agree on if he was competent to stand trial. Interestingly, the lead psychiatrist that worked on this case was also the one that testified at the Jeffrey Dahmer case that was also going on at the same time. Oh, wow. That took a full turn. Dahmer was one of the most notorious serial killers in the U.S. We haven't covered him yet, but most people are familiar with the basics of his 13-year killing spree, which he received 16 life sentences for. I just barely started a while back to research Jeffrey Dahmer, and honestly, I have about 1,600 pages of research. And I was like, mm, I'm not going to tackle that at this point in time. <laughs> He's a household name, though. Most people probably know yeah. who he is. His crime shocked the world when he was arrested in 1991. Not only did he murder 17 teenage boys and young men, he had tortured them before killing them. He dismembered some of them. And in some cases, he ate his victims. Mm -hmm. He also had sex with the victims' dead bodies. Yeah, he's one of the top dirtbags ever on this earth. So disgusting. With everything coming to light in the Dahmer case at the same time, I'm sure that Christopher didn't seem like as much of a monster as Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh yeah, he was a small fry in comparison. Mm -hmm. Not to take away from the life that he took, but if you're comparing the two, you can see that he would get very little attention yeah. as opposed to Jeffrey Dahmer. Certainly not as unstable or as crazy. He was just kind of the common kind of crazy and unstable. <laughs> That's wild. And I think this might have played into Christopher's trial, because when the experts couldn't agree on whether he was fit to stand trial or not, they asked Christopher what his preference was. What? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Christopher didn't go to law school. Christopher doesn't get to decide. He didn't go to medical school either. No. Yeah. But Christopher said he would prefer to go to jail because that's what the voices in his head told him would be the best thing to do. He was the chosen one after all, and so he needed to go to jail. I cannot even imagine being like, no, my voices say I need to go to jail. I'd be like, no, my voices say I need to go to Bermuda and lay on a beach. I actually laughed out loud when I read this in the court report, that he was allowed to stand trial and deemed competent based on his preference to go to prison and not to a mental institution because the voices in his head told him it was the better place for him. <laughs> Yeah, that totally is ironic right there. Irony at its best. Yeah. My mental health issue is making this decision for me. So you should just allow me to make it and say that I'm deemed competent to stand trial. Yeah. Even though it's my mental illness that's telling me that I should. The voices are telling me I'm competent. So <laughs> that's what you should deem me. And they're like, okay, well, we couldn't figure it out. That's right. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to life in prison. So instead of getting treatment... He went to the Maximum Security Columbia Correctional Institution. Yeah, the voices don't want treatment because then that'll kick them out of their little rooming space there. Such an interesting thing. 
I always find these cases so fascinating to cover because it's such a debate over how we treat prisoners with mental health issues. Oh, yeah. The last place he should have went was probably prison. Mm -hmm. He needed some treatment and some help. Yeah, but we're going to get into that debate even more today. Between 1991 and 1993, Christopher made several attempts to take his own life. Once with a hacksaw blade, once by setting himself on fire, (gasps) and once by cutting his wrists with razor blades. It was very clear that he needed mental health treatment and that what was able to be provided by the facility that he was at was not adequate. Oh, those are such violent ways to try to harm yourself. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine setting yourself on fire? No, even accidentally touching a hot pot. I don't want to do that, let alone light myself on fire. He was doing all of these things to quiet the voices in his head. And they're still not recognizing, oh, maybe he needs to be at a facility where they can help him. Well, the decision was made to move him to the Wisconsin's Resource Center, but there he was found to be too dangerous and unpredictable. Oh, man. Allegedly, he had planned how to rape a female staff member and then had an escape plan that involved hostages and a garbage truck. Within one month of the transfer to the mental health facility, he was sent back to prison. So he is totally on a decline rapidly. Mm -hmm. And they can't send him to the mental health facility because he's too dangerous and the prison doesn't have the resources to deal with the mental health issues. So he's kind of stuck in between these two worlds and needs both of them. Yeah. And he's just falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. It just seems that there was no space that was adequate enough to meet Christopher's needs for mental health or for the security level for his behavior. That's a tough place to be in. Mm Mm-hmm. Authorities erred on the side of caution and sent him to the maximum security prison that was best equipped to deal with mental illnesses. If I was going to be a prison guard, I'm not sure that's the prison I would sign up to work in. No. Not only are you working with hardened criminals, but the ones that are the truly disturbed ones that can't be helped anywhere else. And I thought, good on those people for working at those sites. Yeah, they deserve a medal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because that would not be an easy job. No. It would be pretty hard not to get jaded working in that position. Or just super uneasy because you would just never know what your day was going to entail. Yeah. How would you walk that line between having compassion for the mental health patient and having disdain for the criminal that they were? Yeah. That line can really get blurred some cases. It was at this facility where Christopher met Jeffrey Dahmer. He met him? Uh Uh-huh. In the walls of the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin. Dahmer had just completed a year of solitary confinement, where he claimed he had found Jesus and was ready to meet his maker. Oh. But his attitude, according to Christopher, was anything but repentant as he watched from afar. Dahmer had been kept in solitary confinement for his own safety. The things that he had done were atrocious. Even among hardened criminals, his acts were monstrous. Cannibalism and necrophilia? And pedophilia? Yeah, that's just also gross. Yeah, prisoners like that usually don't fare well. No. But when he came out of solitary confinement, it seems that he had kind of missed the memo of how the other prisoners felt about him. And I wonder if it was because of all the fan mail that he was being delivered while he was in prison. Yeah, he got tons. Mm Mm-hmm. He had book deals and he was doing TV appearances. Women throwing themselves at him. Yeah. He claimed that he was repentant, but his actions spoke otherwise within the prison walls. He would fashion prison food to look like severed limbs and pour ketchup over them to imitate the blood. And he purposely put them in places where they would be on display. What a dirtbag. Well, it didn't endear him to anybody, prisoners or guards. No, it's almost making fun of or light of the things that he did. Yeah, he thought it was funny. And he thought he was some sort of celebrity because of all this fan mail that he was getting. Yeah, don't do it, you guys. Don't send fan mail to these kinds of people. But those were kind of like his little voices telling him that he was right on track. Only they were external ones. Yeah, they weren't the internal ones that Christopher was experiencing. Interesting parallel, though. Mm -hmm. Osvaldo Durathi, an inmate serving time for a drug conviction, became so obsessed with making Dahmer pay for his crimes that he faked a mental illness so that he could be transferred to the facility where Christopher and Dahmer were both being held. Mm. On July 3rd, 1994, Osvaldo hid a shank that he had fashioned from razor blades and a toothbrush in his waistband and went to attend church services for the inmates. After a ruse to go to the bathroom 
and changing the position of his weapon, Osvaldo was sat behind Dahmer. Moments after being seated, he jumped up and in front of other prisoners and guards, he slashed at Dahmer's throat. Dahmer was only mildly injured, but this was the kind of impression that he was making on other people. The other prisoners just wanted to kill him so much that they were willing to go through the lengths of getting transferred to just try and take a stab at him. That's wild. Dahmer had a prison guard detail at all times for his protection, which it seems he felt was almost like a status and gave him this false sense of security and encouraged him to continue to provoke the other prisoners. Yeah, he's like, I got my own bodyguard. Yep. I'm like Harry Styles. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere I go, people want a piece of me. And so I need protection. You ain't all that in a bag of chips, Dahmer. He thought he was. Christopher said that, quote, he crossed the line with some people. Prisoners, prison staff, some people who are in prison are repentant, but he was not one of them. Ugh. On the morning of November 28, 1994, Christopher had been experiencing a brief period of stability and was assigned working duty with two other inmates, Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer. Up until this point, Christopher had had no contact with either of them before. He said that he had been watching how they interacted and that he knew of their crimes. He claims that he had even taken to carrying an article about Dahmer around in his pocket because he was so disturbed by his attitudes and the crimes that he had committed, ones that he felt particularly defensive about. The majority of Dahmer's victims were black men. Yeah, young ones. Eleven of them were. Oh. Jesse Anderson was different from both Dahmer and Christopher in his lifestyle, but he too had ended up in prison for murder. The rich businessman had planned and carried out his wife's murder in the parking lot of a restaurant that he had taken her to for a date in 1992. Oh. Anderson tried to claim innocence and claim that two black men, one in an L.A. Clippers ball cap, had murdered his wife. He was caught when the ball cap was traced back to him, but he was willing to ID two innocent men for his crime, trying to get away with murder. So now he's in a room with two people who have openly targeted and hurt black people. Mm -hmm. Anderson had also allegedly defaced a portrait of the legendary civil rights leader Martin Luther King, Aww. making Anderson a racist in the eyes of Christopher. Well, he probably was a racist, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like he probably was. Yeah. In an interview after the crimes, he said, quote, There was a picture in the arts and crafts room that a prisoner had spent a lot of time painting and he had hung it up in the room to dry. And Anderson painted a black dot on Martin Luther King's forehead as if it were a bullet wound. <gasps> what a dirtbag. Uh -huh. On that morning, all three inmates were assigned to bathroom duty in the correctional facilities gym. According to Christopher, they were all led unshackled into the gymnasium where they were left unattended. In total, it would be over 10 minutes that three convicted murderers were left unsupervised. And I know 10 minutes doesn't seem like a long time, but it was enough time alone to be deadly. Oh, a lot of mayhem can occur in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I do think I know what you're going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's been clicking as you've been talking. <laughs> Christopher, now 25 years old, retrieved his mop and was filling a bucket with water when someone poked him in the back. He claims, quote, I turned around and Dahmer and Jesse were kind of laughing under their breath. I looked right in their eyes and I couldn't tell which one had done it. His rage flared. His paranoia flared. When the three men were supposed to split up, Christopher chose to follow Dahmer toward the locker room instead. Once inside the locker room, again, without the supervision of the guards, Christopher confronted Dahmer with the newspaper article that he had carried around in his pocket. He later told the New York Post that, quote, I asked him if he did those things because I was fiercely disgusted. He was shocked. Yes, he was. He started looking for the door pretty quick. I blocked him. And I'm not sure how what happened next was ever allowed to happen, but Christopher revealed a 20-inch, 5-pound dumbbell bar from the weight room that he had been concealing. Yeah, that's not a small weapon. No, where are you concealing that? But it's just the bar, right? Yep, just the bar. Yeah. It made me wonder, does where Bruce MacArthur got his ideas from? Yeah, maybe. But his was even a much bigger pipe that he had hidden. Mm -hmm. I think it's up the sleeve. That's the makes the most sense still after all these cases. <laughs> you flip that out out of your sleeve. But this is a prisoner that's supposed to be under constant supervision. Yeah. He's a known dangerous prisoner. Yeah, it's wild to me. 
And there's a lot of people that speculate that guards looked the other way, knowing what was going to happen. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Christopher beat Dahmer over the head with that bar twice and then smashed his head against the wall. Christopher said Dahmer didn't fight back. He just said, quote, I don't care if I live or die. Go ahead and kill me. Oh. So Christopher did, telling reporters later that Dahmer, quote, ended up dead. I put his head down. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize that that's who this was. I knew how Dahmer had died, but I didn't know that this was the guy. I never really looked into his case. This is how he ended up in the prison to kill Dahmer. Wow, that's wild. And it puts a new spin on how he believed he was the chosen one. Yeah, to go in there and kill Dahmer and all these other racist people. But especially Dahmer, was that his main focus? I don't know if Dahmer in particular was his focus, but he definitely had a dislike and he said that he was watching him. Yeah. And Dahmer would have probably been the most talked about amongst all of the inmates. Mm -hmm. So he would have been the main focus at the time. He even has his own bodyguard. And where was his bodyguard? Well, they had left him alone. Yeah. Next, Christopher took a look around. Finding himself still unsupervised, he casually crosses the gym and entered the locker room where Anderson was working. What happened in Christopher's words, quote, pretty much the same thing. Got his head put out. Wow. Dahmer was found by guards a short time later at 810 next to a toilet. Anderson was found in a different location in a nearby shower stall. Both were barely alive and were rushed to hospital. Dahmer, at age 34, passed away on the way to the hospital at 9-11 that morning from multiple skull fractures and brain trauma. Anderson, at age 37, met a similar fate two days later. Wow. The official report by the Columbia County Sheriff, James D. Smith, said that, and this is going to speak to the theory that maybe the guards had something to do with it. Eight people were in the prisoner's recreation area around the time of the attacks, including two guards, a recreation director, and other inmates. At the time of his autopsy, Dahmer was in shackles. So that goes against what Christopher claimed, that they were all unshackled. Yeah. So they were maybe trying to cover their tracks and like, oh, no, look, he was shackled the whole time. Well, it does make you wonder, was Christopher lying or did the guards put Dahmer back in shackles after they found him being like, oh, crap, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, it's so hard to say. When facing the court for a second time in his life for murder charges, Christopher at first tried again to enter the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. He later withdrew his claim in May of 1995 in return for a transfer out of state. His lawyer, Stephen Kahn, said the deal was partly out of concern for Christopher's safety. Quote, I think given the notoriety of this case, he's probably safer out of state than in prison here. They thought that the other prisoners would want to kill him for killing Dahmer? Well, I'm not really sure that was the thought. I think it was to protect the guards, maybe. There's always those two sides of the story when there's a vigilante killing. Yeah. Because he's lauded as a hero by a lot of people. Yeah, I think he would have been celebrated by the other prisoners, especially if they're having to lock up Dahmer for an entire year in solitary confinement just to protect him mm -hmm. and have this one-on-one -on -one detail too. And so that's why I question, why does he need to be transferred out of state for his own safety? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I thought it was an interesting statement given the allegations floating around at the time that the guards had purposely left three inmates alone because they knew of Christopher's strong dislike for Dahmer and his beliefs and the voices that told him that Dahmer wasn't repentant and was a racist. The guards had known that Christopher had become fixated on Dahmer and still had delusions of being a chosen one and was tasked to deliver justice. Yeah, it's like leading the horse to the river and just let him drink. Mm-hmm. In later interviews, Christopher said that, quote, they had something to do with what took place. Yes. But even years later, he refused to elaborate out of fear for his own safety, saying, quote, I would need a good attorney to ensure there would not be any retaliation by Wisconsin officials or to get me out of any type of retaliatory position they put me in. Oh, yeah. I would never want to tell on a guard for fear of then what future guards would do to you. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting side of the story. That is, actually. Christopher was sentenced to two more consecutive life terms, plus 30 years. At the end of sentencing, the judge said, quote, I am confident that you will remain in prison for the rest of life. 
Oh, yeah. Columbia County District Attorney Mark Bennett said, quote, We cut the defendant no slack here. He's been sentenced to the maximum penalty. And honestly, he's not safe to be released back into society. If he's going to kill these two people so quickly, given the opportunity, it sounds like he would go on a rampage, like a total vigilante rampage, killing anyone who he thought was racist. And then in real life, that can get blurred, Mm -hmm. where people who are not racist would be viewed as such, and he would just be killing anyone that he thought had done him wrong. Yeah. In 10 minutes, he made those decisions. Yeah. And was brutal about it. The state did follow through with their agreement to send Christopher out of state. In July 1995, he was transferred to federal prison in Colorado, where he remained until 2000. While there, he experienced some success with treatment for his mental health difficulties. He participated in both educational and psychological programming. In addition, he was permitted to work and was given audio tapes to help him relax and quiet the voices in his head. Prison records from the Colorado facility indicate that while in treatment, Christopher was a willing worker with an above-average interest in a job. Which is ironic, considering that's how all of this started. Mm -hmm, Because he wanted a job. Yeah. Yeah. He was willing to kill for the job that he wanted. That's right. At this time, he required little supervision and was friendly, congenial, and helpful. He had daily contact with other inmates in the recreation yard. He made no attempts on his own life and received only two minor misconduct reports, one for refusing to take a drug test and the other for possessing an unauthorized item. He had audio tapes that had been used as part of his treatment program in the federal prison. I'm actually so shocked that he was put into Gen Pop. Mm -hmm. Like he just killed two prisoners and you're not going to keep him separated? Right. But at this time, he was successfully being treated for his mental health issues. Hmm. And so... I think this case really speaks to what can happen when we're treating mental health issues. Yeah, because then that's alluding to the fact that it was his mental health issues that caused him to behave in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. He was allowed to have a keyboard. He had oil pastels and paper. And he truly believed that all of these objects had helped quiet the voices in his head. So these are all things that he was given to use as coping mechanisms. But I'm assuming he was also medicated. He was. Unfortunately, the taming of the madman inside of him would not last. On April 11th, 2000, he was transferred to the Wisconsin Secure Program Facility in Boscobel, Wisconsin, a new supermax facility. Because he was considered one of the most dangerous prisoners, they built a new facility and he got transferred to it. The change in environment and the conditions he had to be placed in because of his violent past and his risk to others aggravated his condition. So because he was considered one of the most dangerous prisoners, they automatically put him into a program for the most dangerous offenders and did not take into account his mental health issues at the time. Or the progression, how good he was doing at the time. That's right. They just put him right back to the max. This new environment aggravated his conditions. And I think they would aggravate anybody. He was put in solitary confinement, could have no personal items. He was under 24-hour illumination and lacked air conditioning in his cell, which we've joked about that that's a privilege. But for Christopher, this was a huge thing because of the medication he was on. It actually put him at an increased risk for heat stroke. Oh, so he felt it extra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is tough because we talk about that too. Like you're in prison, you viciously, brutally murdered people. Do you deserve your pastels and paints? Yeah, but then they're humans. So yeah, it's a tricky one for sure. And unfortunately for Christopher, these were all of his coping mechanisms. Yeah. If you think about what was COVID like during lockdown, most people did go a little bit stir crazy without any social interaction. Yeah. How many people put together a puzzle who never do puzzles? Right. And we could still turn the lights off once in a while and do a puzzle. Yeah. Or even sit outside in your backyard. Mm -hmm. You could FaceTime a friend. There was lots of things you could do. Yeah. But he couldn't do any of those things. And here's already a person that has a fragile psyche. But then maybe I'm just being too kind because all of these things are fitting for a dirtbag, right? He Mm -hmm. did murder three people. And viciously. Mm -hmm. And unprovoked. It wasn't like a split, like self-defense or a heated moment. He sought out to kill these people. Right. There was no external force provoking him. No. In his mind, he was justified. Yeah. But not provoked. I feel like those are two different things. Yeah. 
The conditions were so poor, though, for his mental health disorders that in 2001, Christopher and other inmates filed a class action lawsuit because of the conditions that they were placed in. And I honestly think it's a no-win situation. The conditions were thought to be needed to keep others and himself safe. He had to be constantly observed, hence the 24-hour illumination, because he had attempted suicides. And so they kept him on a 24-hour watch. Hmm. And he wasn't allowed to have any personal items because he had fashioned weapons out of them before. And so I can really see both sides of this story. Yeah, it seems like he needs somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And remember, he was allowed to mingle and be social before, and he killed two inmates. Yeah. So that's why they put him back into solitary confinement. But in between that, he had been let out in the general population and hadn't killed anybody. That's right. But when they moved to this new facility, all of the new policies and procedures changed. And he's gone to a place that it's for the worst of the worst. Right. So they have to have these strict policies in place or mm -hmm. it would be mayhem. Exactly. And this maximum security prison is just that. It's a prison. It's not a mental health facility. Yeah. And he is a dangerous criminal. Absolutely. It's a huge area of concern for most countries around the world. How do you handle the Christopher Scarvers of the world while in prison? How do you meet those two needs? Mm-hmm. Between then and 2003, he attempted to commit suicide three more times, twice by taking an overdose of medication that he had stockpiled, and once by slicing his own head open to stop the voices. Oh, so he's not being treated now then at all, like even the medications they've stopped? He was on some medications because he did actually stockpile them and take them oh, as an right. overdose, but it wasn't the same kind of treatment program to help him continuing to want to take the medication and he wasn't receiving the psychiatric support there. There was just a set of rules you need to take your medication and there was no training to how to deal with it. And all the coping mechanisms that he had dealt with, they had taken away. Right. On various occasions, without anything else at his disposal, he beat his head against his cell wall for prolonged periods of time. He told his doctors that the pain and the noise helped distract him from the voices in his head and that he wanted to break his head open so the voices could escape. Melissa, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, total dirtbag, but he is suffering. Mm -hmm. This is a guy that they said was competent to stand trial. And there is a huge following that believe he has no mental health illnesses at all. Really? Mm -hmm. They think he's just lying about the voices? Yep. That he's making it all up and that his crimes were just purely racially motivated. Interesting. But I think you can have both. It's always both. Right? <laughs> he can have a mental illness and still his crimes will be racially motivated because that's what the voices are telling him he needs to rectify. Absolutely. Both would play a factor. I listened to an interview with his son, Chris, who is just starting to reconnect with his father. And it sounded like even he was in denial about his father's mental illnesses. He didn't think his dad had them? No, from what he says, it sounds like his perception is, is that his father doesn't have mental illnesses. But I think it's important to point out or to recognize that he's meeting his dad after he's had some successful treatment. Okay. He's not seeing him in the thick of it all. It's actually much later that he starts to reconnect with his father. That's really interesting coming from his son, because you would think if it's a loved one, not that mental illness is an excuse, but you would kind of want that. Like, no, he's not a bad person. It's because of his mental illnesses. You would want the reasoning behind why he could do these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a result of the lawsuit, even though it was dismissed, Christopher was again transferred to a few more facilities until they found one that was better fit for his needs and to control his violent ways. Gradually, he was permitted to interact with staff and other inmates, leave his cell on a daily basis, and give an art supplies. In addition, he was able to see a therapist more frequently than he did at the secure program facility. Christopher believes that his mental health has improved since his transfer to facilities in Colorado. In a June 2004 progress assessment summary, he was described as, quote, amiable to treatment and not a management problem. He was coping at the time with homemade earplugs, and making scratching noises on his jacket to help drown out the voices in his head. He is classified as continuing to have, quote, moderately severe mental health needs. In 2015, he was allowed to leave solitary confinement. Wow. He was in there for a long time. Years and years. Today, he is at Centennial Correctional Facility in Colorado. He currently remains in prison with no provisions for parole but with treatment, has become an advocate and an author of poetry. 
He has published eight books about his life and has started to write a policy proposal called the American Prisoner Repatriation Act, which demands that American government repatriate prisoners to their ancestral homelands abroad if they request it. What? So basically... If I'm in the U.S. and I commit a bad crime, I should be able to go back to my homeland, like to where my ancestors are from? Mm -hmm. Or if you're Canadian and you commit a crime there, that you should be allowed to go back to your home country. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. You did the crime in that country. You should pay for it in that country. You're theirs to prosecute. But I bring this up to show you this was a kid that couldn't cope in school. And And now he's writing policy. Yeah. And I don't want to come off as poor Christopher... Quite the opposite. What he did made him a dirtbag in my eyes. He killed an innocent man, stood over him and in cold blood, just murdered him. And tried to murder a second innocent man. Yeah, as he ran away. Dahmer and Anderson, they were dirtbags as well, but I don't think that gave Christopher the right to murder them either. No, and he did that unprovoked. It wasn't like they got into a fight and it was like self-defense or things got out of hand. He wanted to kill them and it was premeditated. I 100% believe that Christopher is a dirtbag. Oh, yeah. What I find incredibly tragic about this case, though, is that the untreated mental illness, I believe, led to all of these murders. And if Christopher's behavior now is any indication, all of it could have completely been prevented. And that is the really sad part of it. Mm -hmm. Seeing now how successful he's become with treatment, with coping facilities, with having contact regularly with a therapist, I just find it so sad and how tragic It is that three people had to die. Mm -hmm. Yes. If he had been given those AIDS as a 17-year-old boy, would it have gotten to this? But he was just labeled as a troubled kid. If we don't learn to treat mental illnesses differently, we're going to continue to see more senseless deaths Mm -hmm. like this dirtbag caused. Yeah. And we're not justifying what he did, but understanding how it got to that point. Mm -hmm. And just before we go... We don't usually bring up the children of dirtbags that we talk about, but in this case, I'm going to. I feel because he's gone public with his struggles, it's okay to discuss it. Christopher's son, named Chris, has faced some difficulties because of his father's actions, but he has persevered. He credits his success to his mom's tough love, support from siblings and relatives, his love of basketball, and to advice he received from his dad when he was going through a particularly tough time and had started to make some wrong choices. And it looked like he was picked up by the police a couple of times. He does have a a record. They were mostly driving infractions. So driving without insurance or registration, driving while suspended. Not huge things, but definitely a slippery slope. But not violent crimes. No, not violent crimes. And Christopher recognized this and reached out to his dad. And he felt that it was because of his anger towards his dad that he was kind of falling on that slippery slope. So Chris reached out to Christopher in prison. In one letter, Christopher told his son, quote, tough times don't last, tough people do. And you are the toughest kid I know. Christopher encouraged his son to study hard and to take up sports. As a result, the boy graduated with a degree in sociology from the Bethany Lutheran College in Minnesota. He was given a two-year scholarship from the University of Wisconsin and received support from the Creative Corrections Education Foundation, which helps students whose parents are criminals serving sentences. Wow. Chris is described as, quote, one of the most mentally tough kids he has ever met by the founder of that foundation, Percy Pitzer, a retired prison warden. Wow, what a compliment. Mm -hmm. And how wonderful to see that he's not carried on that cycle, right? I just thought it was really important to put in there about the difference in support and lifestyle choices that can happen. Yeah, because he could have used this as an excuse to go down the rails, but he didn't. He bettered himself in spite of what his dad was and what his dad did. Mm -hmm. And good for him. What a smart kid. He just seems so self-reflective. Yeah. And how many kids that are starting to go down that path will actually listen to somebody, you know, when they say, hey, this is not the right path for you. You need to smarten up. And they actually listen and then make such a good thing of themselves like that. It wasn't even that people were telling him what to do. He sought it out. Yeah. So he recognized that he was on the path that maybe his dad was on. Yeah, that's true. Good for him. And that is the case of the dirtbag monster, Chris Scarver, that followed the voices in his head to enact his own vigilante-style justice for his perceived injustices. A dirtbag that was lauded a hero by some and proclaimed a monster himself by others. Wow. 
I feel like we could talk here for days about the things that you just told us. And thanks for bringing that case to us because I knew about Dahmer's death, but I didn't know Christopher's story. You just know that there was another prisoner. This is what happened. You know, you know about them going to be cleaning the barbell, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I had no idea his backstory. And that's why we dig deep in Buried Motives. Yeah, you definitely did on this one. And you gave us a lot to think about. Cases like this are not black and white. Like you said, we have that criminal part of it and we have the mental health part of it. And hopefully as time goes on, we as a society learn how to mesh those two things together more successfully. Absolutely. That's why I think it's so important to dig deep into every case. And we'll be back with you next week when I dig into another case. Until then, see ya. Bye. We are going to thrill you with some stories about murder. (laughs) Okay, and I feel like I'm right up on it. (laughs) Yours bigger than mine? (laughs) Yours are usually a little bigger, but mine carry more punch. (laughs) I'm all excited because I know what's going to happen next. (laughs) Okay. It's like regular crazy and then like crazy, crazy. Crazy, crazy. I didn't know that that's what this was. I thought you'd be excited about it. Yes. Like I was picturing the movie, like the documentary when you were. Christopher believes. Hold on. I don't know what he believes because I scrolled too fast. (laughs) He's, he's grown. How do I say that? Good for him. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.